0: As we uh, we go along, and just as you're settling and finding your way in the Old Testament, to Daniel two, there is a there's a title for you, Apocalypsis, Apocalypsis, I'll explain that word in just a moment. Daniel chapter two, and we're gonna we're gonna try and take the whole chapter. So it's a it's a it's a big chunk. It's a. Uh, it's a big bite. It's going to be, a, it's going to be a, a steak and a half. So let's see what we can do with it. Apocalypsis is a Greek word, and it means revelation. And revelation rem- means the removal of a veil so that something can be seen. And if you want to know what Daniel chapter 2 is about right at the start, it is this. Daniel 2 is about the removal of a veil so that God can be seen. I don't know if any of you have ever watched that program on, on TV. It's a uh, quite a funnish sort of, sort of one. It's called the masked singer. It's uh, very popular. And as you might know, there are certain celebrities that are chosen. They, they get behind these masks. They get behind these elaborate costumes and they sing a song. And the panel of celebrities then try and guess who is behind the mask. And then at some point during the program, after the person has sung, that the panel, because they don't have a clue who's behind there most of the time, they start shouting out, take it off, take it off, take it off, take the mask off. In other words, reveal yourself, reveal yourself. In an extraordinary dream, the God of heaven begins to reveal himself to a pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the first of my headings the God who makes himself known. If you went back into Daniel 1 verse 1, you'll know that there was a very powerful pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar. He's come into Jerusalem, he has destroyed the city, he has ransacked the temple, he has stolen the temple things and put them into the temple of his own God, and he has taken sort of the cream of the crop of, of, of the Jewish line, uh, he's taken people like Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and, and he's taken them off into Babylon, and he's tried to recalibrate them into Babylonian clones. And if you read through the book of Daniel, you will know that Nebuchadnezzar really was a man who was full of himself. And he's a very powerful man. In fact, he is so powerful that when he speaks, life is given or death is taken. You remember in the story, at at his very womb, no matter how irrational it might be, if he gives the order, every astrologer, every magician, every wise man in Babylon is going to be killed. This is one powerful man. We, uh, we complain about our Australian leaders here in Australia, don't we? Well, Nebuchadnezzar makes our leaders look somewhat saintly. Take a look at this arrogant man in Daniel chapter 4, verse 29. It's about 12 months later. And, and as the king, king Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of the royal palace of, of Babylon, and he sort of asks himself a rhetorical question. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? How extraordinary it is that the God of heaven begins to reveal himself to a man like this. God begins to reveal himself to an unfaithful, idolatrous, pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar who thinks he is something of the next wonder of the world. Here's how the Apostle Paul would describe Nebuchadnezzar in Ephesians chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar would be darkened in his understanding and he would be separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in him due to the hardening of his heart. Having lost all sensitivity, Nebuchadnezzar has given himself over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and Nebuchadnezzar is full of greed. We might be so surprised to know that God begins to reveal himself to a man like this. But it's all too f- easy to forget that we were once Nebuchadnezzar's ourselves. Before God revealed himself to us. We were all blind. We were all foolish. We were all Ignorant. We were all darkened in our understanding. We were all living selfish lives for our own glory, worshipping idols, even if that idol was ourself. To the faithful exiles like Daniel, this is the beginning of an astonishing unveiling of God to the very man who put them into exile. But God does not just reveal himself. To the Israelites, God reveals himself to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the pagans who do not know him. The very same God who revealed himself to Moses... And the very same God who revealed himself to the Israelites is the very same God who now begins to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember how God revealed himself to Moses when he put Moses in the cleft of a rock? Do you remember that? Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. Take a look. The Lord, the Lord, as he passed in front of Moses, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. It's going to be a little while before we see the actual conversion of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. But I wonder if you and I this morning can be joyfully thrilled That God begins to unveil his grace to a wicked man named Nebuchadnezzar. And the question I want to ask you this morning are we thrilled when we hear that God reveals himself to the wicked? Are we thrilled when we read stories like this? You might remember Jonah. Jonah wasn't all that thrilled when God revealed himself to the wicked Ninevites, was he? In fact, he was so unthrilled that he took off and ran away from God. And even when God got hold of him again and he went and the Ninevites turned and repented and they believed in God and God saved them, uh, Jonah went and sat under a vine and got a bit of a sulk. If you sitting here this morning know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then God has revealed himself to you in grace. You didn't find God. God found you. You did not find grace. Grace found you. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9. But now, and he's writing to Christians, But now that you know God, or rather, are known by God. But let's go a little bit deeper. Ask yourself this question, why did God put Israel into exile? Why did God put Israel into exile? Now, one of the answers that we get, and we'll get there to, to Daniel chapter 9, verse, verse 7, but I'll, let me just give you a, a little taster of it. Here's the reason. Uh, here's what Daniel says to God. He says, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Israel are in exile because of their sin, because of their unfaithfulness to God. But that's not the only reason. God has put Israel into Babylon because he wants to reveal himself to the pagans through Israel. Remember the gospel, the gospel that was given in advance to Abraham? It was for who? It was for the Jews and the Gentiles. It was for Israel and the nations. And so here God puts puts Israel into Babylon and he wants to shine through them. He wants to shine his light through them. He wants to reveal himself through them. In this case, it's Israel to Babylon. It's It's Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. See, this is what Jeremiah meant. If you were here last week, remember Jeremiah, the prophet, he wrote to the exiles, Jeremiah 29. And he said to them in Jeremiah 29, he said to them, listen, don't fight Babylon. Don't flee Babylon. Don't retreat from Babylon. Settle down. Have children. Marry and all that stuff. Pray for the city. Live godly lives. Why? Because God wants to reveal himself to the nations. Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. As children, as children of God living here in Barcelona, Remember that from last week. As, as children of God living in the worldly Babylon today, living right here in Nile. What or oh, why has God got us here? Because he wants to reveal himself through you to those people, those pagans, those Gentiles. Those that are separated from him and darkened in their understanding. He wants to reveal himself to them through you. That's why you're here. That's why we're here. The God who makes himself known. Secondly, the God who makes himself known in humility. Now, if you've got Daniel open in front of you, Nebuchadnezzar is quite the paradox, isn't he? He is this awesomely powerful man, but he has dreams that trouble him. He has dreams that disturb his sleep. Now, we can't be absolutely sure, but from the way the Hebrew text is written, it seems like possibly that Nebuchadnezzar has actually forgotten the details of his dream in some way. It's the way the text is written. You know that, don't you? You have a dream, you wake up, and you can't remember all the details. But one thing that he does remember, he does remember the fear in those dreams. And we understand that as well, don't we? Look at chapter two, verse one. He is he is troubled by his dreams. Chapter two, verse three. A dream that troubles me. There there are dreams. These dreams that he's having fill him with fear. But it's quite a paradox, isn't it? This super powerful man who thinks he's the seventh or eighth wonder of the world, but he's that he's he's, he's troubled by these dreams that go through his mind. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in his fear, he suddenly demands that all his astrologers, magicians, and wise men, they tell him what the dream is, or he's going to kill them. Two options, and it could be both. One, he's forgotten the the details of the dream, and therefore he wants them to tell him what it is. Or he actually knows that the magicians are a bunch of charlatans anyway, and they just make up things on the go. Either way, this man is threatened, He is insecure. He explodes in a rage that will end the lives of the astrologers as well as the lives of Daniel and his friends. Nebuchadnezzar becomes the epitome of a powerful human being who can do the most atrocious things when he is threatened and use his power to destroy you remember Pharaoh in the book of uh, Exodus, don't you? He was threatened by the multiplying Israelites. And as they gave birth to baby boys, he, he, he ordered that they, that they be killed and be thrown into the Nile. You might remember Haman in the story of Esther. He was threatened by the, by the Jew named Mordecai who would not bow to him, would not honor him, would not uh, show any fear to him. And so Haman goes into an insecure rage where he decides to plot the death of every single Jew on a certain day. You might remember Herod in Matthew chapter two, the, the, "The magi come to him, but they outwit him God, sends a dream, and they bypass Herod, and Herod flies into a rage of insecurity, and he orders that every boy in Jerusalem, or every boy in Bethlehem under the age of two, is killed." A person by the name of Niebuhr, he wrote this. this is a great, uh, great quote. Niebuhr wrote, quote, he said, at the root of much of our modern political tyranny is the lust for power prompted by a darkly conscious realization of man's insecurity. The Hitlers, the Mussolinis, the Pol Pots, the Putins, the Kim Jong-uns of this world, they are so deeply flawed, so deeply insecure, and they use their powerful greed for self-gain. Which so wonderfully draws our attention to gaze upon another king, a very powerful king. In fact, the king who has the, 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 the power of, of heaven and earth, a, a king who did not use his power to self-indulge, but to save others. Have a look at this king in Philippians chapter two verse 68, who talking about Jesus? Being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see the king? This is the king of heaven. This is the king that had the power, all the power of heaven and earth. The, the, this king has, has the very power of life and death in every single word. Yet he did not use his power for self-gain. He did not use it in a lustful advantage for himself. But he laid it aside to become a man, a servant, a servant even to death on a cross. You see, that's, that's how the God of heaven reveals himself. He reveals Himself to us in the humility of His Son. A King who did not come to be served but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. This is our God, the servant King. God makes Himself known and He makes Himself known in humility. Thirdly, He makes himself known in giving. Now, if you've got your, your Bible open in front of you in Daniel chapter 2, the, the interpretation of the dream is actually quite straightforward because Daniel tells us what the interpretation is. But just have a look at it in verse 31. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream and he sees this enormous statue, verse 31. It is dazzling, it is awesome in sight. And then on the statue, there is verse 32, there's a head of so there's a head of gold, and then there's the chest of arms, a chest and arms of silver the belly and thigh of, of, um, of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet, which are a combination of clay and iron. And then notice, look at verse 34. So suddenly, out of, out of nowhere, this, this sort of supernatural rock, it's a, it's, a, it's a rock not cut by human hands, comes and, and it smashes the feet and everything crumbles and, and everything is sort of swept away and this rock suddenly becomes this, this huge mountain. Uh, across the whole earth that lasts forever. Now, if you look in Daniel 2.36-43, uh, to 43, Daniel tells us that the statue represents four kingdoms of which Babylon is the first. Now, if you were right there when this happened, when you were right there, if you were a Jew listening to this or looking at this right there, you would have absolutely no clue as to which kingdom is coming next. No clue. And so Daniel does not want us to spend a useless amount of time trying to figure out which kingdom is next and all the rest of it. He does give us a clue in chapter 1, verse 21. He does tell us about the next two kingdoms in Daniel chapter 8. But I want you to see what God reveals about himself. It's, it's, It's not about what kingdom is going to be revealed next. It's rather about what God is revealing about himself. So look at it in verse 36. Daniel says to him, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Let me just bring this up on the the screen. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over all of them. You are that head of gold. Here is what God reveals to Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head of gold. In other words, the position that you have, the wealth that you enjoy, the power at your disposal is not from your God. It is not from your hand. It is from the God of heaven. The true and living God has given you everything you have. God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar as the God of all riches and the God of all power and the God of all authority. And God is the one who chooses to give it to whom he wants, when he wants, how he wants. Nebuchadnezzar, everything that you have is been given to you. Would you say that the world leaders today would need to hear something of this message? World leaders, what you have and what you are, And the authority you have, the power you have, it's all from where? It's from God. If you had one opportunity to say something to Mark McGowan about God, what would you say? Or put it this way, what do you think that God is saying to Mark McGowan? Mark, open the borders! Uh, No, well, God will open the borders a little while from now. God is saying to Mark McGowan, you're not the premier by your own smarts. You're not the premier because of your own educational wisdom. You're not the premier because of your own political maneuvering. God has given you the power and the might and the authority. Here's here's what God would say to Mark McGowan. I have placed Western Australia into your hands for this time. Scott Morrison, I have placed Australia into your hands at this time. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar, humble yourself before me. Mark McGowan, humble yourself before me. Scott Morrison, humble yourself before me. Now let me say something crucial here. We'll look at it in a couple of weeks' time. Just because God has put leaders into the position and the power that they have does not mean that we just follow them no matter what. And it also does not mean that they will not be held accountable for what they do. They will be. That's for later. But God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar as the giver of all good things. You Remember this? Israelites were just about to go into the, uh, the promised land. Moses is going to die and Joshua will take them in. And uh, Moses says to the Israelites, he reminds them and says, listen, when you go into the land, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. How about this one in James 1, 17, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Or this one in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? See, when God reveals himself, he reveals himself as the giver of all good things. All good things to be received and enjoyed with thanksgiving. But nowhere, nowhere do we see the gracious giving of God more than in where? In the giving of his son for us. Have a look at it. Famous verse in the whole Bible. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he that He gave his one and only son that those who believe shall not perish but have eternal life. Can we rejoice this morning in the God who reveals himself in the humility of his son? And we rejoice this morning that we have a God who's revealed himself as the giver of all good things and the greatest gift of all in the giving of his son for our sin that we might not perish but have glorious eternal life. There is a God who makes himself known. And he makes himself known in humility. And he makes himself known in giving. And fourthly, he makes himself known in sovereignty. Again, back to your Bible. Look at, look at how God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar in the exiles in 39 to 43. Now, I'm not going to read that again for you, but just if you got your Bible, follow there with me. Here's what God says to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, your, your kingdom, you, you're the, you're the head of gold, and, and, and after you, there's going to be another one. And after you, there's going to be another one. And after you, there's going to be another one. And, and at some time in that mix, there's going to be another rock that comes in and smashes, smashes the whole lot. Here's how God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar. You have what you have by my hand and it will end. The kingdom you have is from me. I've given you that kingdom, I'm going to take the kingdom away. Both you and your kingdom will fall. Now again, we're told no details at that point and how that happens. We have to wait to Daniel chapter 5. But here's the message. Here's the unveiling of God to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you are not immortal. You are not God. God. You are not eternal. Neither is your power, neither is your kingdom. God has decreed your rise and has decreed your fall. In the very words of Job, what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar the Lord takes, I mean, the Lord gives when he gives, and he takes when he takes. You see, God is revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, to the exiles, and to us as the God who is sovereign. Again, if you had an opportunity to say something, to reveal something about God to the rulers of this world, what would you say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes. The Lord has decreed your power. The Lord has decreed your authority. The Lord has decreed your position. And He's also decreed when He takes it away, when it falls. I guess it doesn't come much clearer than Psalm 75, verse 7. When the psalmist says, It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. Is it not a great comfort to you and I to know that no earthly kingdom, no earthly power, no earthly ruler is sovereign <laughs> Is it not a comfort for us to know that every kingdom has been decreed by God and has decreed its fall? Is it not a great comfort for us to know that it's God that's in sovereign control of all the nations, all the kingdoms, all the powers, all the authorities? And it's not just at the macro kingdom level. God is in sovereign control of every square inch of your life. The Lord gives to you, and the Lord takes from you. Blessed be his name. There's a God who makes himself known. He does so in humility, in giving, in sovereignty. And number five, he makes himself known in his son's kingdom. The question that you've got to ask at this point is this. Okay, God decrees the rise and the fall of kingdoms. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. But 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 why? What, what is God doing? Is this just some sort of random give and take type of thing? What is God doing? What's God doing in the midst of the rising and the falling of the, of the kingdoms of this earth? Now, the passage tells us, but I want you to see something very interesting. Very carefully, carefully because if you read it too quickly, you sort of miss what he's saying. So look at verse 34 with me in the passage. All right, so he tells him about the four kingdoms that are going to come and go. And then notice verse 34. he He says, while you were watching, and this is where Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Now, Look at this carefully. If you read that and you just stop there, you tend to think that the kingdom only comes in that fourth kingdom, right? So it it seems like the the kingdom that God brings only comes when when he sort of smashes through into the, the kingdom that is of a mixture of iron and clay. But that's not exactly what the text is saying. Have a look at verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But that rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Have a look at it carefully. Verse 45. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not of human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Do you see the difference? In other words, this is always seen as when the Roman kingdom comes, that the rock, the kingdom of God comes in and, 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 and sort of smashes into it. In other words that the kingdom is only supremely seen when it comes during the Roman time, but notice what it says it says that the rock actually smashes all the kingdoms that have come before do you see that it's not just it's not just the clay feet it's not just uh, the, the bottom piece it's, it's all the pieces in the statue. In other words, what God is revealing to Nebuchadnezzar is this: God has Always, will always build his kingdom no matter what is going on on the earthly stage. In other words, what God is revealing to Nebuchadnezzar is, is I was building the kingdom before Israel went into exile. I'm building the kingdom while Israel is in exile. I will build the kingdom after they come out of exile. After you've come and gone, I will build my kingdom. In other words, what God is saying is this, that no matter what happens on the worldly stage, God has always been building his kingdom. And it's a kingdom where he's calling people to come and bow down and worship and adore the king of kings who sits on the throne of heaven. That rock is Christ. That rock is the kingdom of Christ. It came during the time of the Romans. That's right. It was revealed. It was supremely revealed in Christ's coming and, and living and dying and rising from the dead. But God has always been building his kingdom. And he will always build his kingdom. Calling a people to come and kiss the sun. To come and worship the sun. Here's how Jesus put it. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, on this rock, on the gospel, on the death and resurrection of Jesus, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There was a time after Babylon, during the time of the Romans, when the rock came. Sometimes called a living stone. And it smashed into this world. Through the death of Jesus on the cross. He smashed all the evil authorities. Displayed his power. Took away their power. And then rose from the dead. And then ascend into heaven. Where he rules and reigns. That kingdom has always been built. It was being built during the time of Babylon. It was built after Babylon. It's being built today. And Acts 17.31 puts it like this. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from The dead. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that will not spoil, perish, fade. It's a kingdom that will last forever. And one that God has been building from the very first verse of Genesis. So let me start to uh, wrap up for you with this. I want to give you three passages that really pull in Daniel chapter 2 and ask you a couple of questions. Here's the first one. In Philippians 2 verse 9 to 11, it says, Therefore, Therefore what? Well, verse 8, you might remember, says that Christ was obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. In light of the death of Christ, in his obedience to the cross, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father that's the kingdom folks that's the kingdom the king of the kingdom is Jesus Christ who lived died rose ascended reigns and rules is coming back to judge the living and the dead that's the kingdom that's the kingdom that God was calling Nebuchadnezzar to. That was the kingdom that God was calling the Israelites to. That is the kingdom that God calls us to. And my question to you is, have you bowed the knee? Have you truly bowed the knee in adoration and praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who conquered the grave and reigns in heaven and will come again? You remember when Jesus came on the scene, he said what? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God's king to the glory of the Father forever and ever. Have you bowed your knee? It's a second passage. Paul in Corinthians, he writes, Therefore, since we have such hope and we are very bold, we're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the very same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns, turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Remember what I said revelation is? It's the removing of a veil so that something can be seen. You only get To see God, when you see Christ, when you see Him, you see the Father. Remember what Jesus said 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 to Philip. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Has the veil, has the veil been removed from your heart? Do you see God? Do you see Christ? And if you want to know God, you can only know Him in Christ. You can only know God as He reveals Himself in Jesus Christ, in His Son who came and lived and died and rose and ascended, is coming back. It's the only way has that veil been lifted. Which I guess leaves us with this third one. Paul prays in Ephesians, says, "I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know Christ better." Pretty sure that every single one of you, or most of you here, would say this morning, that, that I've bowed the knee. And the veil has been taken off my eyes and my heart. That God has revealed himself to me in Christ. But there's so much more to know. To know God is to know Christ. And we're going to spend all of eternity getting to know this Jesus who loved us. And came for us. And gave himself for us. Would the prayer of your heart be, Father, reveal to me more and more and more of you in your Son? Therein lies the glory. Therein lies the joy. Therein lies hope. Therein lies forgiveness. Therein lies life. Has God revealed himself? And would you pray that God would do it more and more and more and more? And to whet your appetite for what is coming, God has only just started to lift the veil of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebi doesn't quite get it yet. He will. But you'll have to come back and find out when. Won't you pray with me? Father, we can watch TV programs like House Reveal and Room Reveal. And Moss Singer. We want to know what's behind the mask, behind the costume. We want to we want to see these rooms that are revealed and revamped in these houses, but God, our Father, the greatest revelation and revealing is you to us, to our hearts, through your Son. To know you is to know your Son. To love you is to love Jesus. And therefore, we want to know more and more and more about you. So please, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know your Son? I pray that you would... That you would take the veil of any heart here this morning that does not know you and turn that heart to you in Christ. And Father, we just want to sit in silence and we want to contemplate and we want to meditate on the truth that you, you in grace, have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Amen. Can I have the music?